This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. Dirt Road Blues has several distinctions among the songs on Time Out of Mind. The most well-known is that it's the only song to have never been performed live, although it was played at the on-set concert during the filming of Masked and Anonymous. Another is that the backing track we hear on the album wasn't recorded by the band there at Criteria Studios. It was from a jam session held in August or September of 1996, featuring Bob and his touring band. This is interesting because there's nothing from that early session, which Winston Watson reported also included Can't Wait and perhaps Highlands. None of that is on the upcoming Fragments, the bootleg series, Volume 17. In Miami, Dylan just wasn't happy with the way the studio group was sounding on this track, so he asked to go back to the tape and said he'd just sing over it. The song had also been tried in Oxnard before they went to Miami. But even the Miami vocal didn't wind up being released. Bob re-recorded it when they got back to Oxnard in March during post-production. There's an excellent history of these turns for this song in the Clinton Halen book, Bob Songs, Still on the Road. Writer and Dylanologist Matthew Zuckerman has thought a lot about this song and what makes it different. And he's our guest today as we discuss it all further. Matthew is a freelance writer based in Bath, UK, and he's written for the Bath Chronicle, the International Herald Tribune, and a wide range of publications, including the Dylan journal, Isis. He's now working on the memoir of blues musician Kevin Brown and is the co-convener of music events for the Bath Royal Literary and Scientific Institute. A few of Matthew's older writings about Time Out of Mind and then Telltale Signs have been republished on our blog and Substack. You can find links in the show notes. Before we hear from Matthew, a few notes about Dylan FM. We have a premium membership that offers extended versions of our podcasts, video access to our interviews, exclusive posts, events, and more. Our work is entirely supported by these memberships, so please consider joining via the links in the show notes. We also publish a weekly Bob Dylan News Roundup email that shares all of the important links and information from the press, about new releases, new videos, other podcasts, and more. We do that every Sunday. You can sign up for free at freakmusic.substack.com. And now, here's our talk with Matthew Zuckerman about Dirt Road Blues from Time Out of Mind. It seems to me that the general impression is that Make You Feel My Love and Dirt Road Blues are the two songs that don't really fit on the album. Uh, Make You Feel My Love more because of the, the lyrical content. But Dirt Road Blues, because it is a very upbeat, jerky song, very out of the flow of the, of the whole album. So I wanted to kind of uh, look a bit more deeply into the song and see whether there was something I was missing that Dylan had wanted the song there or whether I was right in feeling it didn't fit. So that's why I kind of picked the song. So as you looked at it, what characteristics set it apart from the other songs on the album? As far as the lyrics go, it seemed like it would fit quite well. I mean, it starts off with the, um, the singer walking, like in many of the songs. He's pacing around the room, praying for salvation till his eyes bleed, chains shattered, looking at his shadows, running through the rain and hay. 
this would seem to fit in very much with the whole album, but the kind of Sun Studios type sound that it had was rather out of keeping with it. But then when I looked a bit more at the song, I thought it's different in another way from almost every song on the album. It's very much an album being addressed from the singer to this one other you, right from the beginning. I'm walking with you in my head. And almost all the songs, standing in the doorway, I don't know if I saw you, if I kiss you or kill you. Million miles, you took a part of me I really miss. Nothing can, nothing can heal me now but your touch. And that whole flow then culminates in Not Dark Yet, which is the first time he would refer to her in the third person. She wrote me a letter. She wrote it so kind. And he's right down at the bottom and he's not even talking to her anymore. And maybe he thinks he's, um, he's over her. Because in the next song, he starts off again. Um, I went to church on Sunday and she passed by. My love for her has taken such a long time to die. And it doesn't die, it comes right back. And in the song, then he starts again with you. One look at you and I'm out of control. Looking at you and I'm on my bended knee. He's right back in it. He's now going to the ends of the earth. He's begging, he's pleading. It's a last desperate attempt. The complete reversal of um, It Ain't Me, Babe. I mean, th this, is, this is what the girl wanted to hear him say. But then in the next song, Can't Wait, I can't wait for you to change your mind. I left my life with you somewhere back there along the line. He finally realizes it's over. And in Highlands, he's not talking about her at all. He's just talking, he's just walking. And he ends up, that's good enough for now. And it seems to have a flow, except for that one song near the beginning, where again, he talks about her in the third person. So I think that's why, for me, as much as the sound, it, it doesn't actually fit. Do you think that in any way it's designed to be um, a bit of a pause or a chance for reflection after the introduction of Lovesick? Y yes. Before I noticed this about the first person, third person, I was thinking, that's it. He starts off with this statement of extreme isolation, and then he wants to get the travel going. This is travel. In, in the article I, I wrote for you, um, I think you've put on the blog, I talk about it being rather like the Schubert Winterreise um, song cycle. One man walking through the snow with all the songs dealing with him, wrestling with his, uh, his departed love. So it seemed to fit at that and I imagine that's what he wanted but I think if it had been in the first person it might have it might have worked yeah and it also establishes the kind of blues standard element of the song a little bit yes and I, I think it was one of a I mean as a structure for the album you've got dirt road blues million miles till I fell in love with you and can't wait which are all those kind of variations of certain blues forms so that's the kind of spine of the album. So maybe they're not the major songs, but the spine is there, and then the major songs form around it. So I think in many ways it does work, except as I, I feel that lyrical twist, and also um, I could imagine, I, mean, I don't know this at all, but I could imagine an argument between Dylan and Lanois, him wanting a real some studio sound on it, and Lanois wanting it to fit in more with the groove on the album. And it probably ended up somewhere in the middle between the two. I'm trying to remember, is this the one song that they said they used an original riff from the earlier recordings? I mean, Dirt Road Blues is the only one I think recorded with his touring band. He had Winston Watson on drums as well as Tony on bass. 
I think that is because this was from a, a slightly earlier session because yeah. Winton left, in fact, before most of this recording happens. So I think that is the clue that it's a little yeah, yeah. bit of a leftover. And of course, we have the fact or irony or coincidence that it's the only song never been performed live. That's right. That's right. He did a, there was an instrumental version of it, an outtake from the, uh, the movie Master Anonymous in 2003. So that's what, seven years after recording it. So presumably he hasn't forgotten the riff, but has, um, has never done it live. And considering, you know, songs like Shake Shake Manor got played quite a bit, you'd have thought it's a song that would have worked well. Who knows? I guess, I mean, there, there are many fine songs that don't get played again, but uh, you have to wonder whether there's a reason. I mean, yeah. my own guess would be that um, he's a little bit irritated with it. If he, if he happened to agree with my feeling that it didn't quite fit, then maybe he's a bit just irritated with the song, didn't want to get back to it. I mean, it, it does strike me that the Telltale Signs collection, one of the key signs he wanted to tell was that Oh Mercy and Time Out of Mind could have been very different albums. How, how do you enjoy the song? I mean, if we take all the analytical elements away, I remember when I first heard it, I just moved back from Japan and all of my audio stuff was packed away and I got an advanced cassette of it. So I went round to a neighbor's house and listened to it. And, and I remember that first listening and I really loved it. Uh, it had this tremendous groove to it and I loved it. I think later when I got to know the album, I've liked it less because to me it doesn't quite fit. But I was thinking about that and I thought, well, if this song had appeared on um, Together Through Life, I would have really loved it. I think it would work better than a couple of the um, similar songs on there. Um, and, I, and it would be a high point for me. It, it does seem to me to be the one song that when I listen to the whole album as an album, as a work, then I feel it is the weak point. Not as a song, but as a song in the sequence. It's interesting to think if he hadn't had Dirt Road Blues on there, I mean, he'd written Mississippi for the album. And I do wonder how we would feel about the album if it had been Lovesick, Mississippi, and then Standing in the Doorway. Have you tried that? Have you listened in that sequence? I'm just doing it at the moment in my mind. <laughs> I think the, the version on Love and Theft is almost too centred. How, however desperate the words sound, the person there sounds more in control of the ship than the person needs to be there. But some of the slower versions, you know, the um, the original Oxenad version, possibly could have worked very well. Yeah, I, I recently had the idea about a conversation about Under the Red Sky, and I made the comment that if you took Wiggle Wiggle from the first spot and moved it back to seven or eight, I think it kind of changes that album because it starts off on a funny foot. I, I hadn't thought about... Uh, Resequencing time out of mind, what the possibilities mm. were. Because Red River Shore also, you can play with ideas about where that would sit. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's interesting to know why. I, I think in the piece I wrote for you about Telltale Signs and all the different the different signs that were, I think, being communicated in the collection, I thought about that about why Red River Shore wasn't in there. And the only sign I can think is that he's saying I made a mistake. I should have had this on the album, because I can't think of any reason, thematic or musical, not to have an, a song like that on the album. And the fact that he had two versions of it on Telltale Signs, very similar arrangements, suggests maybe he thought so as well. Yeah, what do you see in there that tells you what you think he was hinting at? Well, 
for one thing, the fact that the majority of the songs on that whole three CD collect collection are from those two albums. I think there are 12 songs from Time Out of Mind, only 11 on the official album. And those versions, not only are they different arrangements, but the whole sound is very different. There's much less of that Lanoir ambience about them. It's much more four or five men in a studio. The sound that Jack Frost got a few years later when Dylan started producing himself. So I think he, I think he does, um, although clearly he respected Lanoir, that's why he went back to him a second time, and that's why I've heard they kept contact. I think it was a compromise. Both albums were a compromise, and he does have feelings, I think, about how it could have been, which is, as I say, one of the telltale signs. It seems interesting that there's never been a producer since then. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to kind of trace Dylan's whole career based on who was producing. Because, I mean, he started out with incredible luck, you know, with his first three producers. First time he went in the studio, John Hammond, who just tells him basically, there's the microphone, do what you want to do. And he was a jazz producer. He was used to just setting the equipment up, let the band get on with it. And he started with that freedom, so got a sense that this is possible. But then he got Tom Watson, who was technically a better producer, who was able to go along with his different things. And then Bob Johnson again. And these people did everything in the studio. They managed to read what he wanted and get it out there. But then after he kind of separated from them, he never really settled on that. He tried sometimes, you know, Jerry Wexler or different producers. Sometimes they were kind of not really produced by anybody. And I hear it was only in 1999 when he recorded Things Have Changed that that session had to be done quickly and they couldn't get a producer. So Dylan produced himself. And as he was leaving the studio, according to Tony Garnier, he said, you know, I think we could do this. And that's where he had the idea, bring my touring band in, produce it myself. And maybe now he's learned the things that people like um, Bob Johnston or Tom Wilson did so smoothly, he didn't even notice they were doing anything. He's learned that and he managed to do it himself. I mean, it's interesting, the only two times he recorded with the touring band before were rather dissatisfactory albums in many ways. So I think he had a kind of phobia against doing that until Love and Fair. Now that's a great story about things have changed. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that and noted yeah, yeah. that as the demarcation point. Well, and it's interesting because so often things that seem to be the beginning of something are often the end of something else. I think Time Out of Mind, which is generally seen as the beginning of his rebirth of his last period, was in a way the last album of his searching for that security in the studio to actually do what he wants. And he was still going to a producer with a very identifiable style to help him make the album. Love and Theft is actually where he starts as Jack Frost to do it himself. So, I mean, it's the same way. Um, we often see Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis as the first generation of rock and roll. But actually, they were the last generation of something else, that whole tradition, you know, through Charlie Patton, Muddy Waters. They were making the music of Mississippi, of Tennessee, of Louisiana. They were making them, they were vamping it up a bit, but doing the music they were growing, they've grown up with. The next generation, Liverpool, Hibbing, Minnesota, London, they were taking music from wherever they wanted. You can often view things in a different way. Something you think is the beginning of something can actually be the end of something else. So I think Time yeah. Out of Mind is kind of the end of his, that journey between when he split up with Bob Johnston 
And when he found as Jack Frost, he could do it himself. There was that whole time in the middle where I think he was struggling and time out of mind is the last step of that. He clearly takes care with the opening and closing tracks and they foreshadow or summarize in ways that those two stand out. And it is interesting that those two albums had a very distinct <laughs> reputation for a long time. Uh, under the That's right, yes. Effectively s- still does. Yeah, uh, um, I think I was a bit too young to to get uh, Blonde on Blonde first time round. But even Blonde on Blonde, you know, this very romantic, serious album, starting off with Rainy Day Women, must have been a bit of a shock for a lot of people first hearing it. I think, you know, it, there's different songs, you know, like a Rolling Stone or Joker Man, it's quite clear why you want to open with a song like that. But he, he often thinks carefully, you know, with, uh, with Say, starting off with Satisfied Mind, gives a very, very distinct feel to the album. So I think he thinks a lot about it, except for those years, you know, down in the groove years, where I think he, he basically kind of um, lost the idea of thinking about an album. And time out of mind, he, you know, the open and the close, I don't know you could formulate it any other way than, uh, than the sequence that he chose. Yeah, oh yeah, yes. It, uh, it's it's a very very clear journey. It always reminds me of the the Frank Sinatra album in the wee small hours, which was his first concept album back in nineteen fifty five, and that told basically a long night of the soul of this one heartbroken man, and each song has a slightly different mood as he's wrestling with with her and sometimes bargaining with her to get her back or pretending he doesn't care, I get along without you very well. And finally, coming to the realization, she's gone. And I think there's, I think there's a very similar journey. And I'm sure, you know, given Dylan's love of Sinatra, I'm sure he knows the album well. And whether consciously or not, he was thinking of that. I'm sure that was, in a way, as much as tribute to to um, Frank Sinatra as um, Shadows of the Night. There's also a timing issue in that at 72 minutes, it was already one of his longest albums and in the CD era had no more room. So a song like that would have had to bump maybe two other things. Possibly, possibly. How did it feel when it arrived and versus what you might've been expecting at that time? It was, it was of course, very dark. And the fact that it had come out just a few months after his, um, that trouble that put him in the uh, hospital, I can never pronounce the name, but yeah. the heart trouble it was very much received not only by journalists but by everybody as something that had come from that so it felt very much that i mean i know he objected in an interview to people thinking it was about his death but it did seem to be like that and i think it took a while a bit of distance before you realize you know these sessions the songs have been written a couple of years before the sessions have been months before so it took a while to see the song in a slightly different perspective and I think over the years, I've definitely grown to see the same as Blood on the Tracks. Of course, it has a relationship to how the, the writer of these songs, of the singer, was feeling at that time. But only a relationship. Those are only starting points that the songs go off in many different directions, which I think at the beginning we didn't kind of see. We just thought this was a, a kind of last will and testament. And of course, I mean, now we think he was 56 then. He's 81 now. Um, it was it was far from that. In, in terms of the creative or the quality boost, um, having you know 
seven years since Under the Red Sky and, and everything that had happened. Was that noted at the time or was that as impactful as we now look back at it? It, it was pretty impactful at the time. The fact that it won three Grammys um, was not only due to their waking up, you know, with, with the near death, the time he was in hospital, it made people kind of remember him. But it wasn't only that. I think um, the song did have the, the songs did have a real impact. I know, like with a lot of albums like that, probably it was a little bit overrated at the time. I remember reading Elvis Costello saying he thought it was the best thing he'd ever done. But but I think it certainly stands, you know, um, as one of his major works. If if you had to choose 10 works to show somebody the whole drift of his career, it would have to be in there. It's one of those. And now it's 25 years. It's uh, It's amazing to see, although he's not been prolific with new songs, how, how um, what seemed to be his last gasp has actually um, become the longest stretch of his career where he's, he's remained consistently connected and creative. Anything you're uh, hoping for in a bootleg series or things you've heard whispered of over the years and would like to see? One of the great things about Dylan is you never know what you're going to get. Before Telltale Signs, if somebody told me that an outtake of Can't Wait was going to be, you know, the, the best thing on the album, uh, I, I would I would not have I would not have expected it at all. But the uh, the slow long outtake on that is absolutely magnificent, you know. So so you never know. The most recent uh, uh, Springtime in New York collection, of course, was a bit disappointing because almost all the best performances had already either been officially released or leaked. I mean, there was just the the band version of um, Too Late that I think uh, was the, the one thing that kind of made my hair stand up in that way. So you never know. Um, there could be revelations you never imagined, or there could be, you know, a rather lackluster version of Don't of Not Dark Yet. You never really know. I think for many anybody who's seen Dylan quite frequently, um, it's it's a case that you go to a concert and, and you're wondering which songs he's going to play, and he plays a favourite of yours, but then one of the ones that you absolutely were not looking forward to ends up being the high point of the concert. I remember seeing him in Japan in uh, Ulawa, and um, everything is broken was the high point of the show, and I'd never have uh, I'd, I'd never have expected that. So um, so I think I think the best thing is just to to wait and hope, but. Uh, but not to hope too much because, um, I mean, from what I hear, there aren't many actual unreleased songs that, uh, that are still in the can. I don't know if you've heard differently. No, I don't think there are. We talked with uh, Mark Howard about it and, and tried to probe his memory for some names yeah, yeah. that people have thrown out over the years. And, and it seemed like most things were alternatives um, of things we've known. And certainly with, as you mentioned, the Telltale Signs you know, yeah. release. I think the earlier sessions, uh, it does seem like there was an early session with the band, a significant early session that was meant mm. not for release, but just for working on the songs. And yeah. um, there was some more stuff done in Oxnard, certainly than we've heard uh, again early. I think those are probably the most interesting things. You know, I think they've surprised us every time when we thought <laughs> we knew what was there. So if they're doing it, I'm sure they'll, they'll find some interesting new things for us. 
Yeah, well, um, when you think of another self-portrait, I don't think anybody was holding holding out great hopes for that. But it's uh, that's one of the best volumes in the whole series, I'd say. Well, Matt, I think that's a, a nice place to wrap it up. I want to thank you for okay. your your time. You, those you have two pieces that are on our our blog now. There's one that I'm kind of serializing, but the Telltale Signs piece is up in full. Thanks so much for joining us. This was uh, it's great okay. to hear here. Thank you very much. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. 